Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod, Israel Policy Forum's podcast. I'm Evan Gottesman, Communications Associate at Israel Policy Forum. There is always a lot of discussion about the flow of goods in and out of Gaza. Restrictions imposed by Israeli border control and the blockade, the security element, and the question of dual-use items that could be utilized as weapons by militants, and the impact on the Palestinian economy. But one of the biggest ways in which the long-standing Israel-Hamas conflict impacts Gaza-Palestinians is in terms of freedom of movement. In other words, the ability of human beings to enter and exit the Gaza Strip. My guest today is a person who works directly in this issue. Tanya Hari is the executive director of Gisha, an Israeli NGO working to improve access in and out of Gaza. She studied at UC Santa Cruz and received her master's from the New School. Before joining Gisha, Tanya worked in nonprofits advocating for human rights issues in Iran and Argentina. Her work has been published in a number of outlets, including Haaretz, The Forward, Ma'an, and 972 Magazine. Tanya, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Israeli soldiers and settlers left the Gaza Strip in 2005 in the disengagement plan. And then you have the Hamas control of the Strip starting in 2007 in the start of the Israeli blockade. And since then, three armed conflicts between Israel and Hamas. And that brought about a new set of Israeli restrictions. How does movement in and out of Gaza today differ from the situation before the Israeli disengagement 13 years ago? Um, so, yeah, I'd, I'd be glad to start with this uh, concept of the disengagement. I mean, I think that one of the great myths that we confront is that with the disengagement, um, Israel left the Gaza Strip and no longer owes obligations there. And um, the, the word gisha, for, for those who don't know, actually means access or approach. And our work is really focused on uh, the issue of access, because one of the main ways that Israel continues to have influence and control in the Strip really is on movement and access. And as an Israeli organization, we wanted to hold our government to account um, for its actions in the Gaza Strip. Um, so today, movement and access certainly looks a lot different than it did in 2005 um, on the eve of the disengagement and just after it. Um, and I think, you know, we can mark a number of different periods in the kind of history of movement restrictions. And we've done so in a number of publications um, looking at timelines. I think what's important to keep in mind when it comes to Gaza um, and the West Bank, for that matter, is that movement restrictions um, started quite a long time ago, and, and maybe paradoxically, um, with uh, the Oslo Accords. Um, so, so we we kind of trace back the start of movement restrictions to the 90s, and then we see different peaks over time, um, starting with the uh, start of the Second Intifada in 2000, marked a very very serious departure in terms of of access. 2005 with the disengagement, um, and again, of course, in 2007. And then there are a series of dates um, after that. Um, I think that what happened, though, in 2005 was important because it marked a kind of um, a, a disengagement economically in many ways um, from the Gaza Strip. So while Gaza remained a captive market in many ways for Israeli products, you already had in early 2006 a ban on laborers um, exiting the Gaza Strip. Um, and later in 2007, when Hamas came to power, bans on exit of goods um, to the Israeli market. So you had, um, again, over time, these very 
various kinds of elements uh, of restrictions. It's so we, we tend to use this kind of word closure and, and we or, or some say blockade, for example. And they tend to mean what happened in 2007 when Hamas came to power and the borders were tightened. Um, but really, it, it's kind of a misnomer um, because movement restrictions started much, much earlier. And because what really happened then was that the control it already had was used to restrict uh, access even further. Right. I mean, there, there are movement restrictions in and out of the, the West Bank, which still has much of the area under direct Israeli control. But the paradigm shifted after the Israeli forces and, and settlers were pulled out in 2005. And the situation, as you've touched on, is much different today from where it was in 2005 and where it was at the start of the Oslo Accords. Who in Gaza has been the most impacted? by this shift since 2005? So, I mean, I, I think that really the important um, shift did happen um, in 2007, if we're looking at, at, at the economy of the Gaza Strip. Um, when, when Hamas came to power, Israel decided to, um, like I said, stop all goods going out of Gaza and severely reduce um, the number of permits that, that people um, could get for, for travel for various kinds of purposes. And the stated goal of that was to put pressure on um, uh, the Hamas regime, which had taken over control um, inside of Gaza. Um, but the main people who've paid a price throughout the years have been civilians and, and particularly the private sector. So just to kind of speak about one particular issue. So in 2007, for example, you had these restrictions on entrance of everyday items. Um, things like toys, uh, chocolate, uh, paper, these were things that were banned uh, for entrance at the time, and they were called luxuries. So only items that Israel thought of as, as humanitarian were allowed to go in. Now, this harmed, of course, individuals in Gaza, but also the private sector who were purchasing goods and bringing them in and selling them within the Gaza Strip. Um, and this paradoxically led to a proliferation of the tunnel economy, so under the Gaza-Egypt border. So then suddenly, um, while the stated goal of the policy was to put pressure on Hamas, et cetera, you had a situation created where Hamas suddenly had access um, to these tunnels that were being built um, quite quickly, and also uh, a, a new budget coming from their taxation of goods uh, that were coming in through the tunnels. So demand in Gaza, of course, for these items stayed the same, and that demand was then met um, by the tunnels. And so you had the private sector suffering, people who didn't have an association with the Hamas government um, essentially being punished. Um, I think another important factor to keep in mind is, is that um, the majority of the population of the Gaza Strip are children. Um, so about 53% of the population is under the age of 18, and about 70% of the population are under the age of 30. So any policy that you implement uh, towards the Gaza Strip um, primarily affects children and young people. And I think that that's something that's overlooked. Um, I think most people, when they think about the Gaza Strip, they think about Hamas, they think about militants, rocket fire. That's the immediate association that people have. And I think a shift needs to happen because the Strip is full of so many young people. They're, of course, innocent. But I think also importantly, they're 
our only hope for the future, and and we should invest in them to to the greatest extent possible. Right. Speaking of those young people, just like young people anywhere in the world, people in the younger generation among Gaza Palestinians have aspirations about their education, and there have been a number of cases where Gaza residents have been admitted to university programs overseas and have had trouble accessing them. Uh, we're actually running at Israel Policy Forum an initiative, 50 Steps Before the Deal, where we outline some of the measures that should be taken before talking about these grand scheme political final status negotiations. And one of our steps is increasing the exit permits for, for Gaza residents who want to study abroad. Specifically among young people, how have the restrictions impacted students or people who, who aspire to, uh, to be students in, in programs outside of Gaza? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so you have kind of two categories of, of students. Um, some who, uh, it, you know, if the subject that they want to study isn't offered inside of Gaza, um, in the past, people would either travel abroad or actually also to the West Bank. Um, travel to the West Bank for study was actually banned in the year 2000. So another good example of, of something that, that happened actually uh, quite a while ago um, and remains in place to this day. Um, uh, so, it, you know, since then, um, young people who, who want to study advanced degrees or, or subjects that aren't offered in Gaza, they do study abroad. And when the Rafah crossing is open between uh, Gaza and Egypt, um, they tend to use the Rafah crossing. Um, Israel did create a criteria for requesting a permit to transit across its territory through uh, the West Bank and to Jordan for travel to third countries, um, actually as a response to work by Gisha in the year 2008, um, when we um, uncovered that the U.S. was about to cancel uh, scholarships to Fulbright students uh, from the Gaza Strip. And this created kind of of attention to the issue of how the closure on Gaza was punishing the exact people that we should be supporting. And it led to a change in policy that helped not only those uh, seven Fulbright students get to their studies, but then also helped um, hundreds of others who were trapped at the time and couldn't get to, to their studies abroad. So since that time, um, every year as the the school year rolls around, um, we we pull out that criteria and we actually still represent dozens of students um, who are trying to get through the the military's bureaucracy and and to get a permit. Um, And that's, of course, because Rafa Crossing has been mostly closed um, since the year 2013. And and then even before then, of course, there were periods when it was closed. Um, Thankfully, in the last few months, it's been open again. Um, So we're hoping for a quiet season and we're hoping for students to be able to get to their studies. But certainly um, when the Rafa crossing has been closed, it's been very, very difficult uh, for them to get permits. Um, The way it works is that people uh, would apply um, until about February. uh, Only graduate students uh, would be able to apply under the criteria. At that time, Israel allowed uh, or added a criteria also for undergraduate students. And what they need to do is go through, of course, the security screening process, wait um, the allotted 70 days, uh, 70 business days of processing times for their requests. Of course, they have to gather all the things they need, not from Israel, like their visas, uh, scholarship money, et cetera. 
Um, and Israel allows um, people to transit abroad, but in a in a quota. Um, so it's 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 actually quite low. Something like uh, a, 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 a total of 400 people per month um, transiting via uh, Israel, and that's on a good month, I should say, transiting via Israel abroad for a variety of needs um, uh, when Rafa is closed. So it certainly is not able to answer to the needs of all um, students. It's the lucky few who get those permits to go abroad, and the rest are basically fighting to get out of Rafa Crossing as it opened, you know, let's say last year on a few days per month. Um, I think, you know, some of the good news, of course, um, about, about young people in Gaza is that there are actually five uh, major universities in the Strip, there's something like 12 additional colleges. Um, actually, women make up the majority of students um, at university in Gaza. Um, and also, um, there's about 1,500 graduates per year in advanced computer technologies. The literacy rate also in the Gaza Strip is actually very, very high at 97%. So again, I, I like to cite those um, uh, data points um, for people who have an impression of the Gaza Strip that it's only suffering, that it's only militants, that it's only conflict. Um, there are certainly many, many young people who are trying to um, advance themselves, who want to uh, go out, go abroad, get educated, and then come back and invest in solving Gaza's problems. Um, and they do face various hurdles uh, in order to do that. No, it's very important to to keep in mind, especially in a in an area where such a significant portion of the population are young people. Touching on some of the the hurdles that you discussed, and some of the hurdles that those people face when they try to leave the Gaza Strip, one of the new restrictions that's come to light in the past year is that when people were crossing the border into Israel, Israeli security officials were asking them to sign off on a form basically saying that they, if they were going to leave the Gaza Strip, they wouldn't come back for a year. Has that been something that's been strictly enforced? Actually, that was a, a, a kind of, from Israel's point of view, a gesture that was created. So what it said at the time um, that this uh, started in, in early um, 2016, actually, it said that people who don't meet the criteria, the existing criteria for travel abroad, they can sign this one-year waiver and go with no questions asked. So when it comes to students, that would mean that they already actually meet criteria. Um, if you demonstrate that you're um, seeking to travel abroad uh, for, for first graduate studies, now undergraduate studies as well, you, you can show all of your paperwork and you're meant to be able to make a, a regular permit application um, to, to transit out for that purpose. The one-year uh, signature was meant to be for people who have no particular reason for going abroad um, that would justify uh, their permit requests in Israel's eyes. But what we started to see was that Israel was actually signing people who do meet the criteria. Um, in other words, even people who were, in some cases, traveling for short-term visits, let's say one of the criteria, for example, is that if you would like to visit a first-degree relative who is gravely ill and lives abroad, you can submit a permit application. But the idea is that you go and you visit and then you return to your home in the Gaza Strip normally, right? 
Um, and in many cases, we saw that Israel was making people sign this one-year waiver as a condition for getting a permit. Um, and so Gisha has been uh, fighting back um, on this. And in several cases, we've actually gotten uh, the, the waiver kind of nulled after a person has signed um, by, by showing that there was no reason uh, uh, for the person to be made to sign this, this one-year waiver. And certainly when you think about, about young people, about students, and now even undergraduate students, I think it, it was actually a very traumatic experience for them to be made to sign this kind of document. As you can imagine, for most young people in the Strip, they've never left the Strip. They've never been on a plane. They've never been away from their families. And so it's quite traumatic to be choosing then suddenly between seeing your family um, uh, if you need to and if you'd like to, if you have the means to return home. Um, and, and of course, uh, you know, your future and this great opportunity that you have on the other hand to go and study abroad. Um, we even saw cases where minors were made to sign um, when their parents weren't, weren't present. So, so I think that this, this kind of uh, 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 gesture, as Israel saw it, was, was, has been abused and, and we think needs to be reversed altogether. It's interesting to see how the policies were originally made and then their application was expanded beyond the official intent. You know, we've discussed a couple of times throughout this conversation that Gaza is not just the conflict. The people are certainly not just militants. And, you know, there are a lot more features to daily life there than just what makes the headlines. But it's also hard to avoid discussing discussing the conflict, especially with what has been going on in the past couple of weeks and the fear that things could escalate into another full-blown war. A lot of the restrictions that we've talked about, especially in terms of the movement of goods, are predicated on the Israeli side on the this idea of dual-use items, that things could be converted into weapons, or they would hold up the weapons convoys or, or ships that have been intercepted on occasion, usually like coming out of Sudan or, or somewhere else that has like a relationship with Hamas or with Iran carrying some kind of weapons or, or military equipment uh, to the Gaza Strip. So what kind of effect do you think easing these restrictions would have on the state of the conflict? And do you think Israel can ever find a way to balance the needs of the people in Gaza with the reality that there have been ships intercepted uh, carrying weapons and things have been used not for their intended purpose, certainly not all the time, perhaps not justifying a blanket ban on an entire category of goods, but nonetheless recognizing the, the existence of the conflict. Yeah, certainly. We, we wouldn't deny, of course, that Israel has um, legitimate and well-founded um, security concerns and and. Um, you know, we we do take a position that um, that Israel can, of course, screen the goods and 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 people who are coming into and out of its territory. But our our position is that security should be the only um, measure by which Israel judges whether uh, people and goods are traveling. And unfortunately, what we've seen over the years is that there are many many other factors which come into play well beyond security concerns. 
Um, and those have to do um, with political decisions about uh, what kinds of pressure um, and when uh, pressure is applied. For example, today, um, uh, Defense Minister Lieberman again reinstated restrictions on entrance of fuel and cooking gas to the Gaza Strip. And that had nothing to do with any challenges in bringing in those items. It's a desire really to put pressure on, on Hamas, um, apparently, in, in these kinds of negotiations that are taking place. Um, we've seen a lot of um, changes over the years in terms of what kinds of goods can come in, what can come out, what kinds of people can get permits um, to come in and out. So just to throw out a few examples, um, I, I like to cite um, throughout the years of the closure and, and when movement restrictions on people were very, very tight, uh, where you only had people coming out for medical treatment um, and, and you know a few others in other categories, you always had this exception for the Palestinian national uh, football or soccer team. And, and and you can maybe guess why that was. Um, it was because Israel was afraid of penalties by FIFA, um, that if it's limiting access for the Palestinian national soccer team, it could be seen by FIFA to be violating its uh, you know rules and regulations. So I, I think that this clearly showed that Israel had an interest um, to allow these these uh, players uh, to travel. It didn't have an interest in allowing students to travel until global attention was called uh, to the issue of the Fulbright students. Um, in terms also of movement of goods, you see a lot of arbitrary restrictions that I can't find a security explanation for. Um, one thing that's been allowed out of Gaza uh, exceptionally over the years um, are lulavim, uh, the palm fronds that um, are used during the Sukkot holiday. Um, so you actually had times when Shas ministers in the Israeli parliament would, would lobby the defense minister to get these lulavim out of Gaza when no other items were allowed to get out to market. And they were allowed out because there was a pressure and there was interest in getting those goods out. So I think that um, while, of course, we can't deny the security uh, uh, needs of Israel and we can't deny that this is a factor, um, politically, uh, you can also say we can't deny that there are other uh, levers of pressure that are used and not used. But I think that that even if we acknowledge that, we need to have an honest conversation about it because it's not all about security. Um, and, and even if you're talking about the dual-use items, uh, we've seen that when there's a will, there's a way. Um, cement has been blocked completely at certain times, allowed in certain kinds of frameworks at others. Uh, gravel uh, was on the dual-use list. Israel is now not treating it as a dual-use item. So I think even there, in the items that are on uh, this uh, so-called dual-use list, you've seen shifts. And, and, and so I do think that a lot more is possible if, if there were more political will. So speaking of political will and the prospects for change, I guess I, we can round out the conversation by talking about what you do. You touched on a little bit and talking about some of the advocacy that was done for the, the Fulbright students, but what you do with Gisha and what Gisha does as an organization to advocate on these issues on the ground in Israel. 
So we're a legal organization. So at the foundation of our work, really, we're trying to help individuals um, who need permits uh, to cross mainly into and out of the Gaza Strip. We do some limited work in the West Bank as well. Um, and so we're helping individuals out of a desire really to help individuals, but also to understand the policy and, and to, to challenge it. Our goal really is, is to expand uh, policy so that more and more people can travel and also move goods um, into and out of Gaza. And then we also do research um, on the situation in the Strip across a variety of issues. So it might seem from the outside that it's a kind of narrow topic, but really, if you go on our website, you'll see there's a variety of topics that we're looking at. Um, from the way that the textile sector is functioning to how women are impacted by movement restrictions. We're uh, doing research looking at the quantity of items that are coming in, uh, both via Egypt and via Israel, and, and doing analysis of what sectors are impacted, et cetera. Um, and then in addition to that, we do public advocacy, both uh, within Israel and also abroad. Um, so there we're trying to recruit support among uh, what we call multiplier groups, people who have an, an aligned interest with us, whether it's from a human rights perspective or, or not. Um, and we're trying to get them to also have influence on policy. We're also meeting, meeting with decision makers, um, uh, journalists and, and, and other um, opinion shapers trying to get them to have uh, encourage a more informed uh, debate on the situation in Gaza. And we also, of course, engage international stakeholders. Um, many people have a role in what's happening inside of the Gaza Strip. Of course, the the uh, sorry, the international community um, is is giving quite a bit of taxpayer funds uh, to humanitarian aid in the Strip, and we feel that they're an important interlocutor to know what's happening on the ground and to also try to have influence and and create change for the better. And I understand Yishal works in the Israeli court system as well? Yes, exactly. We only work in the Israeli court system, I should say. Um, yeah, we file petitions to the courts on behalf of individuals and, and also on principled matters. And we also make quite extensive use of, of Israel's Freedom of Information Act, which is quite similar to the one in the United States, um, trying to uncover policy, uh, get procedures and protocols published, um, in part also so the Palestinians who are most affected by them can have access to that information. Um, so on our website, we actually have a page that's dedicated to um, all of the uh, documents that we've uncovered through that uh, FOIA work. And, and I think it's an important resource for people who would like to see the policy, uh, you know, just in black and white without any interpretation. Um, and, and it's right there on our website. And do you generally find that you meet with success when you file these petitions on behalf of uh, Palestinians in Gaza, or does it prove more challenging? It's certainly a challenging uh, arena, the court, I won't lie. Um, I think, though, that we've been quite successful in using uh, uh, the legal arena, not necessarily within the court itself. Um, you, you don't get favorable rulings. You don't get verdicts that are handed down and that are favorable. But it's a kind of platform um, to get more attention to the issues, um, I think also to kind of provoke and, and promote a more public debate. Uh, we want um, 
the courts to have oversight over the state's actions. And of course, we want the public to know as well. Um, but we do help in many individuals um, through the courts, actually, um, in a kind of a, a funny way, you could say, um, sometimes when we threaten to file a petition or after we filed a petition, uh, uh, the state will, will, will basically capitulate and give the permit. Um, so we've seen a number of negative decisions reversed um, just like that, um, even uh, in cases where a person is, um, so to speak, secure security blocked. So that's an issue that we've been confronting where individuals are labeled uh, with this security block. They don't know why. We don't know why as their lawyers. And, and seemingly they can do nothing about it. But if we file a petition to the court, sometimes the state will capitulate and suddenly give a person a permit. Um, so I think that the legal arena is um, used in a creative way, maybe um, unlike other places in the world, as a, a kind of way to um, encourage uh, uh, the state, um, uh, you know, to to behave differently or to change its decisions. Um, and sometimes they do that basically to avoid having to go to court. Interesting. And advocating on these issues definitely means working in a tough environment. Tanya Hari, Executive Director of Gisha, thank you for joining us and for a really insightful conversation. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Before we close out this week's program, I want to talk briefly about the 50 Steps Before the Deal initiative that Israel Policy Forum has been running for about the past month. This is a program through which Israel Policy Forum is highlighting 50 measures that the United States administration... Israel and the Palestinians should be taking before they go ahead into another round of final status negotiations, the big peace talks or the ultimate deal as President Trump refers to it. Every weekday, Israel Policy Forum has been posting a new step and highlighting it with resources like videos, podcasts, policy reports, and articles. And we're going to be continuing to do so. We're coming up on step 25 the halfway point. So these will continue over the course of the coming weeks. And you can learn more about these steps on the 50 Steps Initiative website, 50beforethedeal.com. That's 50beforethedeal.com. And we're posting these to our social media outlets, so you can check them out there too. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can learn more about Israel Policy Forum's work on our website, www.israelpolicyforum.org and follow us on our social media accounts on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Telegram. I'm Evan Gottesman. Thanks for joining us.